0: Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. Each episode will bring you an interview with an expert in as many diverse areas within the industry as possible. We've got writers, authors, artists, journalists, broadcasters, event coordinators, lawyers, commentators. If you can name it, we've got it. This week I'm speaking to Ahmed Youssef, a digital producer at TRT World and a co-curator of the anthology Growing Up African in Australia. In the course of our conversation, we discuss football in Australia, the football media there, black bodies in football, and the challenges facing people of colour in the media. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, you can follow us on Twitter at footymediapod. Next week, we'll be talking to George Starkey-Midder about the work of Kick It Out, football's equality and inclusion organisation. But before that, it's Ahmed Yusuf, the Australian Football Media and Black Bodies in Football. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Ahmed Yusuf a digital producer with TRT World and a co-curator of the anthology Growing Up African in Australia. Ahmed, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. It's good to be back speaking to you. The Last time we were speaking, it was a troubling period of my life. I'm getting past that point, but it's good to be on. We've been talking about this for a while, and I've been enjoying the series so far,
0: so it's good to be a part of it. Well, at the beginning of all of these pieces, I ask the guest to spend a little bit of time just giving a little bit of context about their career to date, how they ended up where they are, the sorts of things that they spend their day-to-day doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up where you are.
1: Well, I started doing community radio at, like my local community radio station, then moved to doing some, some other community radio at other places, um, did some some reporting on state league football matches in, 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 in Victoria, which is sort of like, I, I, I guess I, I would put it as the equivalent of non league. So it's the, mm-hmm. so it's the state league in, in, in Victoria. And so doing a lot of that. And from there, I interned at a few places, and then started working casually at the ABC, doing some radio producing. And from there, I, uh, I got a job with TRT World and I'm there now doing digital producing stuff, like writing a few articles,
0: doing a bit of their planning work. Like, yeah, it's a interesting role. So talk to us a little bit about the Australian context. Cause obviously you grew up in Australia. You. You've told me before, you, you sort of arrived at football, not very late, but not straight away, not in the, the usual ways that a lot of people end up supporting football. How was it that you made that move then from from sort of starting as, as a kid growing up in Australia to liking football to then deciding you wanted to work in the media?
1: So I started really getting to football when I was 10 after I went, to, I went on a trip to see some family in Kenya. And so that was a very sort of, I'd say life altering moment. Because that interest then sparked my interest into 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 media, which which particularly football media, and I guess it was just following football on Twitter and then listening to a few football podcasts and then getting invited on a football podcast and speaking on there when I was like eighteen, in, still in school, and that sort of like invigorated me into into getting into some of the the stuff that was already happening and in, in in like. Like local in terms of like like I said before the the state the state league reporting stuff and so that sort of springboarded that interest cuz before then I was interested in journalism but didn't really have an idea of like an access point and so I guess the invitation on on that podcast sort of gave me that access point I did some blogging online and then had an idea of what I wanted to do and then try to find places and people who I could then gravitate towards so that was the culminating moment, getting invited into that podcast, and then being like, "Actually, you know what? I could probably do this." And uh here we are today, where I'm no longer interested in potentially, I guess, being a football writer, journalist type of uh, like, because I, I guess I see that that world as a very, at least in the Australian context, as a very. There, there, there are probably in Australia a handful of full-time football gigs you could get. The industry is overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, and opportunities in that space is a, uh, it's, it's, it's very narrow, basically. So,
0: yeah. Mm. Talk to us a little bit about the Australian context because obviously football is probably one of the smallest sports in in Australia. But obviously, it comes after sports like cricket and rugby, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Yeah, and if you're getting Aussie rules, because a lot of people in Australia will be really angry <laughs> that you have not mentioned. I, you know, the thing about the thing about um, football in Australia that I don't think a lot of people outside of Australia can understand is that, however, the really racialized the game is here, the way. F- football in Australia is seen is is pretty much a migrant game. And in that sense it's always it's sort of drenched in those ideas of of sort of like foreignness and otherness and there was this very popular Melbourne based newspaper, I think it's called The Argness. And and they had this headline, Soccer men coming for our boys. So like these Mediterranean men, these foreign men, you know, that trying to come for our boys and convert them to this foreign game. And so football has long been associated with like that negativity with anti-immigration sentiments a few years ago. Alan Jones, one of the most popular radio shock jocks in in Australia, called um Western Sydney football fans suburban terrorists. And that again talks about Western Sydney a very heavily like Middle Eastern migrant area and that element of football and and that element of immigration turning them into this I, like turning them into these 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 terror targets basically. And so and and, th- and that sort of stems back even further, um, the former, and this really relates to how people talk about football in different sporting codes. Kevin Sheedy, one of the most successful AFL coaches in the last, I guess, 30 years, There was a new franchise in, in Western Sydney, in, in, in Aussie rules called Greater Western Sydney. And during that period, they'd struggled to get attendances going up. Whereas the football club that recently had opened, Western Sydney Wanderers was doing amazingly well. They were getting in record crowds. The Sydney Derby, Sydney FC versus Western Sydney had been getting like really, really big attendances around like 40,000. And I guess there was this level of thinking, Oh, wow, we have arrived in the A League with these, with these, with this derby and everything. And in that backdrop, Kevin Sheedy said, Well, we don't have the immigration office giving us fans. And so then again, it comes in that sentiment of, of football and foreignness in, in, in Australia. And there isn't the same sort of national myth associated with football that is with other sporting codes in Australia. And I guess until that national myth arrives or unless there is a sort of split towards the way we see nationalism, I guess, in Australia, football will always be ostracized in that sense.
0: Mm. That's really interesting talking about this notion of a national myth. And I wonder if you could apply that sort of logic to other countries. So, for example, the US context is always talked about in terms of being on the cusp of exploding into the football world. But obviously, again, with with soccer in the US, you don't have that national myth. And I guess my question would be, do you think that there is a sense in which these national myths have now become a thing of the past? You can't simply just arrive at, at that moment. You can't overcome... Like you said, in, in Australia, there's, there's that whole idea of it being an immigrant sport. Will Australia ever be able to lose that? Will the US ever be able to get to a point where soccer is considered up there with basketball, baseball, American football, etc.?
1: It depends on a few things. The thing about football in Australia, football has the biggest participation rates in both young boys and girls, but then there's this cutoff point. There comes this cut-off point, and this really comes because one... The barrier to entry beyond a point is too expensive. So football in Australia is a, it's a middle class sport. Like it's just a middle class Mm. sport. Registration fees are exorbitant, then buying gear, and then sort of that pyramid structure is sort of still not there yet. So for example, I guess in the UK, if, I don't know, any of, any, from, from championship clubs, Premier League clubs, League One, League Two, whatever it might be, if they have a talented footballer and, and that, and that person can't really afford registration fees, they can't buy boots or whatever, they come from a working class background, the club is more than happy to subsidize that cost because they see that footballer as an investment. And so, that can't really happen in Australia at this present moment because they're on the academy system pipeline. The, the, the entry into football is so much more unstructured. You've got state league clubs. Then you have like, um, institution of, you sp- each state has a institution of sport. Then you've got the national institution of sport in Canberra. And so like there's, there's multiple a- entry points and you don't actually know where to go when it comes to development. Whereas if you live in the UK, Oh, you know what? I'm going to see if my kid can go into, I don't know, Manchester United or Manchester City or Liverpool or Chelsea's academy system and whatever happens from there. All those academy systems will poach your child from such young ages like um, I remember listening to Michael Calvin talk about his his uh, his book about um, that football academy system and how football clubs literally scour the internet and if they find someone who's done something a young kid they track down their parents and they see if they can sign that kid up for their pre-academy or academy that is obviously a extreme example but that doesn't exist in Australia and so mm.
0: finding th- the barrier to entry is so much harder for young aspiring footballers it sounds very similar to the us then talk to us a bit about the media context and in terms of broadcasting availability how many leagues would you say are obviously the afl will be available and presumably the premier league is fairly easily available is there any other leagues that are watched how many channels are covering them is it easy enough for you to watch if you want to go to a pub or something like yeah. that
1: basically everything you can watch in australia so be in sport have really tried to market themselves as the European, except for the Premier League. So basically, the, the continental package. So you have La Liga, Syria, the Bundesliga, and I think they've got the Eredivisie as well, and, and Ligue 1. I don't know if they've got the, the the Eredivisie, but I know they've got Ligue 1. And so, they've strategically packaged all those, all those leagues, and have sort of like a package deal, and then they've, and then Fox Sports, who have traditionally had the Premier League, lost the Premier League rights. Uh, I think in two uh, twenty seventeen uh, to to Optus. Optus is similar to B C Sport, is a uh, broadband phone provider, mm. and now they're trying to go into the sports arena. They also had the World Cup, which was a disaster. They they ruined the World Cup experience for a lot of people and the World Cup has traditionally been on SPS, which is I would say is a Channel Four equivalent. It's um it's half subsidized by the government and half subsidized by private advertising. And so they have long been the home of football, like the spiritual home of football in in Australia. They've hosted many, many, many World Cups dating back to I think maybe Either Italian 90 or Mexico 86 is when the, the World Cup uh, coverage really kicked off. And so this past, uh, past, uh, year, the World Cup coverage has been sort of, uh, the the way Optus has handled things has caught a lot of controversy. So going forward, I don't, it's going to be interesting how they proceed because they're trying to be a streaming platform and the, broadband connection in Australia isn't very fast. And so the streaming situation has, was was criticised wholeheartedly by people in the media, fans, and, and and anyone who was watching the World Cup, so much so that SBS then took on the rest of the games around, I think, the last 16. So uh, up, until, uh, up until the last 16, SBS took all the entire games and, and then covered the rest of the World Cup because of the criticism Optus was were having. And now Optus have the Premier League, so it's going to be interesting how
0: they sort of deal with this criticism. So you'd say that there's a lot of people in the Australian context watching Premier League football?
1: Yeah, the dominant football watcher watches the Premier League, and just because you watch the Premier League doesn't mean you particularly watch the A-League. I would say the casual fan will watch the Premier League and the more diehard football fan in Australia will follow the A-League. But that's, that being said, the A-League in the last, uh, few years has gone particularly stale because of the lack of expansion. There's, there's been a big push for expanding the league. And right now they're in the process of selecting the next two teams that will enter the league in the next few years and there's also Mm. been this massive push for promotion and relegation and so that conversation is gaining a lot more traction especially since now there's going to be a massive change in the FFA Football Federation Australia it's going to be a huge change in terms of who leads the organization so since 2005 2005 or 4, I forget. Frank Lowy, who, who is, um, who's a billionaire, who owns some of the biggest shopping centers in, in Australia. He, uh, he has run football in Australia. He, he, a lot of people say he saved football from the brink. And so from 2000 and I I would say 2004 or 5 up until I think 2015 or 16, from that point, his son Stephen Lowy, took the reins, and uh, let's just say there, there's been a lot of talk of nepotism, and then there's a lot of there's been a lot of conversation about the FFA and corruption and and sort of a lot of issues with the FFA. So much so, FIFA have FIFA have been lobbying to take over the the FFA, and I think they have decided to or, or or deciding but regardless if they if they do or not Stephen Lowy has resigned and so we're going to have a new era in Australian football governance and mm.
0: uh, it's going to be interesting well I could talk about that for much longer but we did want to talk about a, a different topic entirely and it's a topic that you and I have actually discussed in, in great length uh, over many points. But I wanted to start with this. This is the question of, of black bodies in sport. And it was prompted by an article that you wrote last year called Imagining Romello Lukaku, the black athlete as invented by white people. I just want to read the introduction to this because I really like the introduction. And then we'll we'll go from there. But you write in this article, which was on shootfarken.com.au. The intro is this. As a society, we have certain imaginations of the black body. It is perpetually big, strong, dominant. We have expectations of how it will move, walk, gesture, and act. It is Serena Williams dancing after winning a Grand Slam, and Piers Morgan questioning her crip walking. I wonder do we have language that describes other bodies with real specificity? When I walk black, talk black, or move black, you have already decided what this is. The imagined black body is a caricature, one without pluralism, diversity, or a mind of its own, a monolith. Claudia Rankin describes it best in her poetry collection, Citizen. Quote, the world out there, insisting on this, only half concerns you. What happens to you doesn't belong to you. Only half concerns you. It's not yours. Not yours only. End quote. Talk to us a little bit about this then, this idea that the, the, the black body is, is something that is, is actually owned by white people.
1: I wouldn't say owned by white people. I'll say it's owned by whiteness. And okay. I suppose it's this idea of what we assume and what we understand the capabilities of that body. When we think about Romulu Lukaku, there are endless discussions about him and his body, about how big he is, about how he moves, about what is his capabilities in terms of his intellect. He is just this, he is just that. I guess what springboarded this article was this chant which really, um, I guess, troubled me, the chant about his uh, his endowment, the, the talk of this 24-inch penis. And a lot of people spoke about this. I, I listened to so many podcasts, read a lot of articles. And, I, and And they sort of talked about it as just because it's perceived positive discrimination, it's still racist. Which I agree, but it isn't positive. Nothing about this is positive. And I think people don't understand the history of what where this imagination of the black and this in this instance male body comes from. There was an amazing article in the New York Times written by Wesley Morris, which sort of I guess we can link this in the in the in the notes, perhaps. Mm. Um that, that talked about the history of in, in particularly in American context, but I think this is sort of broadened out in our in our in a in, in in the psyche of I guess a more global world as we as we globalize and 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 we see these sorts of language in in film and and television just about the history of how African American men were sort of treated and 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 so how they were dehumanized. Uh, and 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 how language was used to dehumanize their bodies, so that you'd call them, and you tell you would speak about their endowment being a mess. In this instance, twenty four inch, and and that would be meaning they are they are animals, and therefore they are not human, and therefore we are we are allowed to abuse their bodies, we are allowed to to castrate them, we are allowed to beat them up. They are not human, and we can kill them. And and so this trope is not coming from from anywhere it's very like there's a particular history of how we talk about these bodies and to not actually address this to not actually talk about this and and just sort of say hey we kind of know it's racist we kind of understand it's racist but not actually doing the work to, to 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 unpack what that means and so the reason i wrote wrote the article is that people have said similar things to me and like I remember walking, and 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 this this is this particularly annoyed me because I was going to play sport. So I I I went I was walking to 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 school one day. Um, after school, going to see my legal teacher, and so I was wearing a a pair a pair of shorts, and he was like, "Oh, Ahmed, are you sure you want to wear those shorts? Because you you don't know what's going to." To flop out, you know what they say about black men. And so, so again, that, that sort of perpetuating narrative, right? And so the, this, this, this narrative doesn't necessarily stop and end with Lukaku. This chant, this, this chant then, then permeates into the consciousness of everyone else and then perpetuates this narrative of over sexualized bodies. And therefore, mm. the, 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 and, and where does the overly sexualization end up? You know what I mean? We are okay to, mm to uh, police these bodies then
0: yeah i think what you have said there that that really interests me is this idea that there's an awareness of what is going on as being racist uh, but there's not really understanding one what we should do about that or or even why it's wrong um, and i don't know w- whether or not you have any thoughts on that because it seems to me something that it is the particular context in which we live in there's a realization that things like racism or homophobia are wrong there's not really an understanding why they might be wrong. So, and, and you mentioned that that might be actually formally instructive in terms of why we are still struggling with issues like racism in the present day. So could you maybe unpack that, those statements a little bit?
1: See, this thing, the thing about diversity, a lot of people talk about, and, and then becomes sort of like this trope where let's just, let's just get one person to write like a, like an article unpacking this, opposed to hiring. Like, there, there's a reason why when you listen to The Guardian, totally football show, or whatever the, whatever podcast it is, it's like, it's like four white dudes in the, in a room talking about why this Lukaku Chinese is, is, is racist. And they are well-intentioned and well-meaning and everything, and they know it's racist, but they don't understand why it's racist. And 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 the thing is, like the Guardian will probably get someone to to write an op-ed, right? Write on their comment page, pay them the the because op-eds get the least amount of pay in any space of writing. And and, and editors know this. Editors know that op-eds are the least amount of pay that you'll get unless you're a staff writer. And so instead of getting someone to do actual reporting, to be a staff writer, and maybe if they're a staff writer, they write an op-ed. Instead of investing in that sense, they'll just get someone... Whoever it might be, John blogs on the street, who's tweeted something interesting. Hey, can you write this as an op-ed? Pay them maybe a £100. I don't know how much is the rates going. Something around that much. And then that's it. And they've done their job. That's their diversity. Mm. And that's where the yeah. conversation stops. And just like thinking about this, let me just I, – I I'm just going to read some of the quotes from – particular folks who, who've who talked about Lukaku, for example. It's like, if you offered me the chance, this is Minerazuki, if you offered me the chance between Morata and Lukaku, I wouldn't even think about it. I would pay 20 or 30 million uh, euros more if I had, and I would bring in Morata. That is because I would always prefer an intelligent player in my team, even if he doesn't score as many goals, even if he doesn't do whatever he needs to do. You know what I mean? And it's just like, that in its own right is like, again, we've coded someone as intelligent. And, and, and Mina Rizuki isn't the only one. You've got Paul Merson, you've got Martin Keon, you've got a number of other people. And I just wonder how that conversation about Lukaku would go if we had a lot more, cause it's wild. Like, it's, uh, like, forget about Australia, cause Australia is very different demographically. Like the UK, the Black British population is huge, like it's it's huge. When I see like the Guardian, who or who which, whichever paper, I'm, I feel like I'm bagging the Guardian a lot. I'm sorry. I just find it wild that they haven't invested in, in 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 these in these reporters. And like Lukaku isn't the only one. Like you just look at the way people talk about Paul Pogba and his hair. And again, this goes back to his body. I recently did like a thread, like, I'm just gonna count to you the number of people that I found that said something about Paul Pogba's hair. So Steve mm. McMahon, Garth Crooks, Gary Neville, Duncan Castle's source, who is probably a friend of Mourinho, Mark Lawrenson, Paul Parker, uh, Warren Joyce. How many, like, I think that, 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 that is like six or seven people all talking about this young man's hair. Preventing him from playing well, and so again, it goes back to this, this: this black body isn't particularly abiding by what we deem acceptable. Like I've never mm. seen an article about David Beckham's hair, unless it was Fergie telling him to shave off his his mohawk and and that whole sort of hair-dry treatment bullshit. Griezmann does blackface, and that's in the public consciousness for like a, a week. And I hear people always talk about Paul Pogba's hair. And so I don't know what is more, what is more damaging? Someone basically wearing another person's skin or someone just, just styling their hair. And, and, and I, I, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we judge and put different parameters for different types of people in, in more broader life and particularly football where people who say things like, Willy Sagnol was a very good example. He, this is this is a quote he said about African players when he was coach of Bordeaux in 2014. The advantage of the typical African player is that he's not expensive, is generally up for the fight, someone you could qualify as powerful. But football isn't only that; it's also about technique, intelligence, and discipline. And then he he clarified his comments later and said, "I'm sorry." Given that we're talking about football, the intelligence I mentioned was obviously tactical intelligence. And in no way was I talking about intelligence in the literal sense of the word. And, and I'm, (laughs) and I'm just saying like, dude, that's what you're saying. Don't, don't try to, don't try to sugarcoat that. What you're trying to say is that these people don't understand football and that an entire continent of people, like one point, like I think it's like two billion people don't understand football, like over two billion people. On a continent as diverse and rich as Africa don't understand football and the way he homogenized the African player. And, and, and by the way, I don't know, you, you would think someone saying something as, as, as racially charged as this would mm. lose their job. He didn't lose his job for this. He just got mm. sacked because he was, he was a crappy coach. And then you know <laughs> what happened? He ended up going to Bayern Munich. And and we don't need to talk about Bayern Munich and 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 uh, their particularities in terms of race. Again, another prominent French coach, Laurent Blanc, wanted players with our culture and history. And when he says "our," he's talking about white French people. He says, Ooh. "You have the impression that they really train the same prototype of players: big, strong, powerful. What is there that is currently big, strong, and powerful?" the blacks and and in this in 2011 he wanted to put a quota on how many black players were going through Claire Fontaine. and mm. he didn't get sacked for this he didn't get sacked for this he got sacked for a bad year 2012 and so i guess like what are the consequences for people who do these types of things so whether it's as covert as the talking of pogba's hair And and that sort of, like, coordinated effort by a bunch of ex-pros, particularly targeting Pogba about his hair, to the more overtly racialized language that comes out from either Willy Sagnol or Laurent Blanc. What happens? Nothing. Whereas Paul Pogba is called Someone Who Doesn't Concentrate on on Football, is called a, a Bit of a YouTuber by Graham Souness, who's obsessed with Paul Pogba for reasons I don't know. Maybe we can think about it
0: and come back to it in a bit. Yeah, there's a few things that I'd love to talk about that, that have been mentioned there. The first one, you mentioned pace and power, and it, it feels as though this summer was really the first summer where where that narrative just became overt, I think it's, obviously it's always been there, um, and a lot of the quotes that you 've given us have been from people from the last decade or so talking about black bodies in in that in that way in that from that perspective of whiteness uh, but this summer that pace and power narrative became became so overt that you were just hearing pundits around the world just talking of African teams and using the phrase pace and power and and obviously African teams with predominantly black players on them, so you wouldn't hear it as much of, of North African teams, for example. Another thing that I think the, that really hit us this summer was the Raheem Sterling debacle, as you, you might call it, where the press consistently call out Raheem Sterling for doing things that people do, but that they seem to have a problem with him doing it rather than anyone else doing it. Maybe this is a, an, an interesting comment on the way that that narrative develops in the public consciousness. Why is it that you think that we've come to a point now where this sort of narrative, this pace and power narrative, can become entirely acceptable? And why do you think we've got to a point in uh, the history of media where you can use a, a person like Raheem Sterling as some kind of divisive Individual who who seems to be this sort of shibboleth between whether or not you're a Daily Mail reader or you're not. H- how do you think we've got to this this place? It feels as though we've moved through that sort of implicit bias from the last couple of decades to a point now where you can just say what you want to say about black bodies without, well, as you say, without there being any any sort of backlash. The thing about
1: Sterling is that I think it's 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 really clear. There is no sort of ambiguity. In this, and if you don't believe me, go look at, I think Adam Keyworth did an amazing thread on just the collection of front covers and, 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 and sort of like headlines about Rahim Sterling. And whether he is shopping at Poundland, whether he is buying, daring to buy his single mother a home, whether it is him eating breakfast, his body is disgust. the night
0: after being knocked out the champions league. I Yeah. Believe. <laughs> yeah. The night after. So, so imagine, imagine eating, imagine, imagine eating. Just after, um, yeah.
1: Just, just imagine eating. So it, <laughs> it it is, it has everything to do with his body. It has everything to do with the space he occupies, the space he occupy. he dares to occupy, you know what I mean? The, 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 the mm. this, this, this working class black kid with a single parent, um, who lost his father very young? That the space he dares to occupy troubles a overwhelmingly white tabloid media who re- who report negatively on him. I, I remember watching a video of 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 him. I think it was an interview he did with Copper90 where he talked about he just doesn't bother to go outside anymore. He doesn't bother to leave the house. Just 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 like imagine that your body has been talked about so much. You are afraid to leave your home because you are unsure what people will say about you. Whether it is, like we said, shopping at a, um, at Poundland, whether it is buying your mother a home, whether it is you eating food, literally just giving yourself sustenance will, will give you this level of outrage and backlash. And I guess that is the most sad thing to see. And, and I guess now people are talking about it more, but it took a very long time for people to talk about it. And for a very long time, people talked about it the same way people talk about how the English press hounds English footballers. And no, they, they, I, I do not remember this level of animosity to any English footballers in the past, and I and I and I, and I tell you why it is, we haven't had a situation where pr- uh, probably the most technically gifted, probably the most talented English footballer, is black. Like you can legitimately argue, who is the most technically gifted and talented footballer in in English football at this point in time? Before you could point to Steven Gerrard. You could point to Frank Lampard. You could point to Paul Scholes. And this again goes back to sort of like this identity crisis that is happening a lot of, in, in a lot of countries in the West, which has happened in France, which has happened in Germany more recently, is this identity crisis of where you see these bodies that do not look like you or the perception of what you reconcile as your national identity taking this space. People say there were black players before Rahim. There were, but there were also a dominant white group of footballers who were the stars of the show. There was John Barnes, but you also had Gascoigne. You know what I mean? There was Ian Wright, but you had Shearer. You have Raheem Sterling, and then you have someone like Eric Dyer or, 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 or Henderson. And like, that comparison is different. You know what I mean? That comparison mm-hmm. is very different. And so, Raheem Sterling taking this space is very different to any other black footballer in the UK, I think. And so, Mm -hmm. and, and also the thing, the thing about Raheem is also the fact that so, having so much confidence in his own ability and his own self-worth to say that I think I deserve a move. And, and that's, I think that self-confidence and what he has gone to achieve at Manchester City is commendable to back himself so young to leave Liverpool which could have been a very comfortable space for him to then go to Manchester City and then then when Manchester City hired Pep Guardiola to then work hard and then have probably his most successful season of to date last year. So yeah, so so I think that level of um of self having the self belief that he does and then being that core integral player it does something to a an overwhelmingly white media that they're still grappling with and i don't think they've grappled with it yet
0: yeah you've talked about the overwhelmingly white media but one of the things that you did mention when you read out the list of people who are commenting about poor pogba's hair for example i noticed there are there are black people in that list garth crooks is in that list paul parker is in that list and this is something that Stan Collymore has come out and criticised, for example, Ian Wright about. And I think, I don't know if he used the phrase Uncle Tom, but he was certainly angling in that way. What are your thoughts on that? When we talk about black bodies being utilised by whiteness, how does the black body itself become inculcated with, within that within that sort of cycle?
1: So I, I feel like there's a few things that we need to unpack here. So there's one, the um, the, the the people... Uh, like Paul Parker and Garth Crooks that have commented on Paul Pogba's hair. So in that sense, they're agents of whiteness policing Paul Pogba's body through respectability politics. It's the sort of like pull your pants up sort of thing. It's the don't look hood sort of thing. It's the be respectable, you know what I mean? Be the good Mm. kind of black. You know what I mean? We didn't work hard for you to be this sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's not allowing the same sort of freedom that whiteness has to that say, for example, someone like Paul Pogba has. So that's, that's the one, that's one element of it. And then you've got, I suppose, the Stan Collingwood conversation where he talks about in an interview that I, that he had in the Guardian with Sasha Nakrani about sort of the way black commentators in the uk have been i guess there's a particular black commentator that is sought after in the uk football media and, and, I, and i and i think that is a fair criticism but i do not take that as a criticism of the individuals i would say for example someone like ian Wright, or he who else did he meant he mentioned a few other people and so i would say these people are being themselves but they are one element of blackness, for example. And so there's there's only one element that is allowed, that is, that is being able to exist in this very white space. And so someone that is more outspoken about race... Like, for example, I don't think Lillian Turam would be able to... There's, there's no Lillian Turam equivalent in the UK. Mm-hmm. Can you name someone like Lillian Turam who talks about race that has actively called out former football teammates. He has called out Laurent Blanc, who he won the World Cup with. He has called out Willy He He's called out a lot of people in France about the way they talk about black bodies, the way racialized language is spoken about in France. And so there is no one like that in the English press. There's no ex-footballer. And so it's it's that situation where it's the what is comfortable for whiteness, What makes me comfortable? It's the particular black person, and so in that sense, I wouldn't call those that group of people "quote unquote" Uncle Toms. I I would call them the the way they have been ostracized by, I guess, Stan Colman. In this sense, casualties to whiteness picking particular black folks, and I would and 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 the the biggest the biggest thing I would I would then come to is that what Stan Colman I think is trying to say is that. I can't exist as I am in this space. And what, and you can, you can argue whether Stan Coleman should exist in that space given his history of domestic violence and, and, and a bunch of other things, right? And so mm. it's less about Stan, I think, and it is more about who we allow in that space, right? And so there's been two as- instances where I've heard Ian Wright speak about race. They've been subtle and they've been very clear cases. And so there's obviously like this, and he doesn't need to speak about race. Not every black person, person of color, need to talk about race. And, and, and that's what I'm, not, I'm saying. I'm saying in, more in a sense of that they know he won't. So they mm. bank on that, right? And so they pick mm. and choose who they feel is going to make their experience the most comfortable. And they, they sort of essentialize particular black people to, to be in this role. And and that's why you have people like Garth Crooks and you have people like Paul Parker who play the
0: respectability politics angle. I think before we move on from from this, let's talk a little bit about the fact that there is still the despite all of the, the things that we've been talking about, this awareness that that there is still implicit and explicit racism in, in the world of football there is still very, very overt instances of, of when this happens. So I'm, I'm thinking of the the Manchester City, I think he was maybe a youth coach who referred to black players as black, big, black and quick, uh, BBQ for short. How do you deal with the fact that... Uh, whilst there may be a conversation in the media at least at the very least about the fact that things like the pace and power narrative are outdated and problematic and even even if they are like you said those occasional op-ed pieces that are mainly done to assuage the the guilt of of an overwhelmingly white media how do you feel about the fact that actually at the end of the day when when the football clubs themselves are still adopting those those racialized images um how how can you feel as though there's going to be any progress in in this area
1: I think this is more about how I guess this academy coach's understanding of of, of black bodies translates into a larger theme. And so Yaya Toure is someone who I think is the most... He's the best example of how we pathologize black bodies. He comes into Europe, European football, and is coded as the defensive midfielder, right? He plays the defensive role for, for Barcelona. He is moved into centre back for the Champions League final and then moves to Manchester City. And he moves to Manchester City and then just almost like over, over a span of a few weeks, people then realize, oh no, this, this guy's an attacking midfielder. He plays, yeah. Roberto Mancini realizes, oh no, this guy is incredibly talented, technical and can score a lot of goals and assist a lot of goals. And so we move him into attacking midfield for his, for, 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 for his ability in that sense. And so he is the example of how it took, I think, how, I think it was like 25 when he moved to Manchester City, 25 or 26. So he spent the first part of his career as a, as a defensive midfielder when he could be something different. And so his body was told what it should be, and it goes back to whether it was Willie Sanyal and what he referred to as 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 African footballers not having the the mental and in, the intelligence tactically to 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 play football, and it goes back to the way this Manchester City academy coach talks about these young footballers as big, black, and quick, and so I think the best example whenever we think about how we limit the potential for for black footballers is Yaya Toure and the story of his career. And a lot of people laugh at Yaya when he says, I am never given the same credit as other white players. I, I, I think that's totally legitimate because can you think of a player that has been made to be made to be put in a position for their first part of their career and misunderstood in such a way that there's this dramatic change in their, in, in, in what they can produce and the level they can produce it at, um, in the second half of their career. I, like, I can't think of anyone like that. And so the fact that he had to endure that and the fact that he had to, um, like, probably he knew what he was capable of, but he held his tongue because he was this, um young black african footballer in europe who could be dropped at a at a sixpence and could be told nah mate you're going home back to the ivory coast right and so i i think i think his story is is so pertinent of how we talk about footballers and 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 then and one footballer today who who we have now started to talk about more diversely especially this season is uh angola kante and i wonder how far that will go now
0: yeah, I think that's a, that is an interesting question. And again, you've got with N'Golo Kanté the fact that he's been positionally shifted this, this season and uh, I think maybe at the end of the season when he's been playing as a number eight rather than a number six, uh, there might be a different conversation to have about the way that the, these black bodies are uh, understood. Let's move on to talk about the media in general. After all, this is a media podcast. You've mentioned the overwhelmingly white football media. We've talked about how the fact that the the media has this inability to really make the the sort of fundamental differences that could make the media a better place for people of color and um, we've we've mentioned that often the the op eds are sort of thrown out as a bone whenever the newspaper editor wants to have some kind of clout to the piece that 's being written i so I suppose it almost becomes a little bit like tokenism where you 're only asking. The people of color to comment on issues where it feels as though the per- a person of color has more of a of, of a say in the, in the issue what sort of experiences of the media have, being a person of color in the media have you had and what do you think that the media needs to do in order to start at, uh, addressing the problems that they they have hmm. this is particularly a hard thing because I,
1: I think people think let's just hire one person or two people and that's sort of like um, our, our quote-unquote diverse hires, and 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 we're, we're, our job's done there, and the job is never done, and I guess it's it's talking about the way we work, it's talking about work culture, right? And and what does that mean? And and what does a safe work environment look like? And so that may be training people to, th- in in terms of, whether it be sensitivity training, whether that be actually actively. Seeing if you, like, how many, how many people of color do you have in your, in, in manage, managerial roles, right? How many people do you have in, in leadership roles? And so that dictates how a culture goes from the, it goes from the top down, not the bottom up. And so we have to, we have to see a, a I guess a, a more progressive look in that sense. But just, but just in the sense of my own experiences, like, there's been a lot of moments where, just the way, particularly senior people have, have treated me in the media, and it's, it's been, like, whether it's, um, going to my first press, one of my very first press conferences, uh, where a, a senior journalist for one of the bigger papers in, 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 in Australia saying to me, you know, Ahmed, not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslim. Or whether it's interning at this one place where, a senior journal that I, that I befriended later did blackface on, 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 on her Instagram page. And then her and her friends made jokes about minstrelsy and those minstrel shows. Or whether it's someone, a number of people at, at work saying the N-word to me or whether it was a boss saying the N-word. Like it's, there's, there's like, there are a number of instances where things like these happen and they could be there are obviously the very big things and there are the i guess the more smaller things where you have someone you might have a white colleague who who talks to you in a particular way and that and that is that is i feel much more harder to pinpoint and I, and i've experienced this where your work is being undermined by somebody and then later your boss then does the double check and then says everything is fine and you're like then why is this person under my neck for for things that they probably wouldn't do to other producers so it's 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 those things and I guess the only way we change that is having a, a better understanding of what it is like to to work in these environments to deal with situations and, and particular work cultures where people are treated poorly and actually having a, a system where complaints are, are taken seriously and respectfully. Until that happens, I don't, I don't see much change. That's, I guess, I guess that's, that's, the, yeah, that's it. Is there anything else you really wanted to talk about? So I'm going to read this quote from James Baldwin and I'm going to give a language warning. And this is in relation to, I guess, this conversation and the way we imagine um, the black body. We have something called the nigger, who doesn't in such terms exist in any such country in the world. I didn't invent it. White people invented him. I've always known what you were describing was not me And what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You invented it, so it had to be something you were afraid of. And you invested me with it. I've always known that I am not the nigger. And if it's true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? And so I guess to end on that quote is the imaginations that whiteness creates of the black body dictates... How whiteness and reveals what whiteness in a sense is and the sort of its own insecurities with itself. And I guess that's, that's the best way I think I know how to end it. Ahmed, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It's been a pleasure. I'm really glad that we've been able to have this conversation. I've been really genuinely enjoying the conversations you've been having on the
0: Football Media podcast. Thanks. Very nice of you to say. How could people follow you and pick up the work that you're doing? So you can follow me at of 10
1: And if you really want to support the work that I'm doing, we have an anthology coming out later, actually early next year in, in March, March-ish, called Growing Up African in Australia. It's an anthology that I'm co-creating. It's going to be amazing. And if you're listening from Australia or wherever you're listening to, I really recommend if you've got any interest in, I guess, diverse stories of young, old, middle-aged African people from all across the continent, the diaspora, you should read it. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at FootyMediaPod. You can tune in next week to hear George Starkey-Midder talk about the work of Kick It Out, football's equality and inclusion organisation. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye.